Before we start the show, we just wanted to let you know that we have some new pieces of merch that we wanted to introduce. We have a new t-shirt. It's the Paul Revere shirt. Paul Revere on horseback saying, He gave him the knife. <laughs> it was previously only available at our live dates, but now it's available at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. You're going to want that shirt. It was drawn by Jess Gupta, my friend who told the original story about he gave him the knife. The person who said he gave him the knife originally on our podcast. So it all comes full circle. What else? Well, in honor of finally reaching the episode 25 on our podcast, we're also very happy to introduce our very first pieces of merch for babies. Yes. Babies come with hats, Toby tells us, and therefore we decided to make some baby hats. You can finally have a baby hat. It's a nice gender neutral white hat that says what's next on it. And in addition to the baby hat, we've also got West Wing Weekly onesies and kids' tees. The onesies and the kids' tees answer President Bartlett's question, what's next? They say, I'm what's next. That's right. You can get all of this stuff at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. We're really excited for you to see it. And there's just a two-week window here, folks. So jump on that new merch right away. Go to thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. And now... On to our episode. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Well, every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than just posting your job online and praying for the right people to see it. So if you're hiring, check out ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter revolutionized hiring. Their technology finds great candidates for you. It learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter will blow your mind. And right now... It'll blow your mind for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. Check it out. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You're listening to the West Wing Weekly. I'm Rishi K. Shirway. And I'm Joshua Molina. And today we're talking about season four's episode 14. It's called Inauguration Part One. That's right, a two-parter. This part was written by Aaron Sorkin, based on a story by Michael Oates Palmer and William Sind. It was directed by Chris Misiano, and it first aired on February 5th in the year 2003. Coming up later in this episode, we're going to talk to Danica McKellar. Here's a little synopsis. We open on the inauguration. Danny digs in on assassination. CJ tempts him with flirtation. Hutchinson's filled with indignation. That's as far as I got. Oh my God, people, Rishi's losing it. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to do it in the form of a syncane, but um, I ran out of time. Yeah, And I, I only had the idea about f three minutes ago. <laughs> That's what I came up with in three minutes. I thought that entire subplot would have been funnier if the guy was handing down decisions uh, in the form of limericks. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a real synopsis. In this episode, the president's about to be inaugurated, but first... We cut back six days earlier to find out how the administration has arrived at the decision to announce a new doctrine for the use of force. It involves Will Bailey finally speaking truth to power and Jack Reese being asked to put his head in the lion's mouth and then the lion's mouth closes. Plus, Charlie's on a mission to find a Bible for POTUS and Danny and CJ continue their cat and mouse game around Sharif's assassination and their own flirtation. That's when I started to realize I could make this thing rhyme. This is doable. So that was a rhinopsis. It was. Yeah, that seemed too good to have been found elsewhere. I didn't do it in trochaic tetrometer or as a syncane or anything. So, you know, it was a lackluster poem. I like that uh, Toby apparently knows his way around 
meter and verse and <laughs> poetic form. <laughs> They're superheroes when it comes to the written word. Will Bailey knows the exact number of words in the uh, State Department text, and he's memorized it. You know, they have special powers. Yeah, I was wondering during that scene on that particular line. You memorized it? It was 1,200 words. I'm pretty sure it was 1,123. What's his concern? I thought well, maybe... I definitely deliver that line as if that is, in fact, the number of words. And I think there probably could have been a slightly different delivery suggesting that he's just being a wise ass. <laughs> doesn't actually know that. I don't know if it's credible that this guy knows the word count. Right. I had a lot of fun doing research for this episode. Ah. Because I got to dig into all kinds of inauguration trivia. Oh, right on. Bring it. Well, for one, the inauguration is usually on January 20th or sometimes the 21st if the 20th is a Sunday. But it turns out it used to be for a long time from Washington's second term all the way until FDR's first term. It used to be on March 4th. Did you know that? I didn't know that. And I thought, didn't somebody famously die after giving an inaugural address without wearing a coat? Apparently not that famously. <laughs> if you didn't come across it. Well, maybe <laughs> I'm wrong. God, I could have sworn that somebody got sick. And I thought, why don't they just do this stuff? when it's bombier. <laughs> well, uh, there's a reason. Inauguration used to be on March 4th until FDR, when they finally realized that there was too much time in between election day mm. and let's get started on getting shit done day. And so the 20th Amendment was passed after FDR's inauguration because they had to deal with the Depression. And so then they said, okay, we're going to do this earlier so that we can actually have the administration, you know, address potential crises and things like that. Interesting. Of course, they could have moved Election Day, but that's probably too involved. Mm -hmm. uh, apparently, it was President William Henry Harrison, our ninth president, who died only 31 days after assuming office, having contracted pneumonia, and apparently he gave his inaugural without wearing a coat. That's just bad staff work. Indeed, yeah, right. Were Charlie alive <laughs> right. back in the day? Well, I don't, I don't think he would have been tending to the president of the United States. Uh, I, don't think, <laughs> That's true. I don't think he would hold the position he holds in the Bartlett administration. But uh, uh, were he there, he certainly would have made sure, that, made sure the president wore a coat outside. Although if the president decided not to wear a coat, then Charlie would have not worn a coat and then Charlie would have died too. Indeed. Although maybe the whole thing might just be a bubamisa because I feel like the whole thing about going out in the cold without layers, it doesn't really make you sick. It makes you cold. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> this is beyond uh, this my pay is grade, medically speaking. JoshMD.com for more words <laughs> of medical advice. <laughs> but while we're at it, folks, check your smoke detector batteries. <laughs> and, and you want to get rid of your sponges. Forget about it. I used to tell you to microwave them. Don't eat, Just throw them away. Really, after about a week's use, kitchen sponge, throw it away. Buy a new one. They're inexpensive. What about washing them in the dishwasher? That's what I'd heard was the way to keep them. I don't away. think so. Right. I don't think so. I'm going to Google it while we're talking about it. I don't think that's good enough. Josh is in the pocket of Big Sponge. <laughs> uh, that's uh, reading the 20th Amendment, by the way, is sort of like reading the rules to Settlers of Catan. <laughs> <laughs> A game which I've never played, but I've always been intrigued by. Oh, come over. We'll play. Uh, is it great? Yes, it is great. It's objectively great. It's just now I've played it so many times. It's almost... There are just too many other new games that to be excited about to uh, feel like I can return to it often. But every now and then we bust it out again and it's great. What's your latest jam game-wise? The two most recent games, though this already goes back months, that you turned me on to that have been big hits with my family are Anomia and Codenames. Codenames is great. Did you not turn me on to Anomia because you went blank? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't, think I, I don't think I did. Oh, then it was, it was one of your friends then. 
Mm. Tokaido is the newest game that I've played, and also Coup. I think you would really like Coup. Oh, right. You did tell me about that, as in yeah, C-O-U-P. It's, it's very up your alley. And, and let me just say, some cursory Googling suggests that uh, maybe you are fine just tossing them in your dishwasher and running them through the drying cycle. So I, I withdraw okay, my earlier comment. I've been doing that, but don't microwave them, you're saying. Stick with your no microwave. I might be wrong about that, too. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I read recently, just throw them away and take a new one. But, you know, I'm going to be out of work in March, so I might, I might go to the dishwasher. <laughs> or you get a job shilling for the sponge industry. Mm-hmm. If you're listening. Okay, back to some rules of the game. As Josh points out, there's actually nothing that says that the president has to be sworn in on a Bible. I think Jake Tapper must have watched this episode. <laughs> you got there before I did. <laughs> because in December, just recently, Ted Crockett, who was from the Roy Moore campaign, got schooled in this very fact. You have to swear on a Bible to be an elected official in the, in the United States of America he alleges that a Muslim cannot do that ethically, swearing on the Bible. You don't actually have to swear on a Christian Bible. You can swear on anything, really. I don't know if you knew that. You can swear on a Jewish Bible. Oh, no, swear I swore on, a, on the can, Bible. I've done can, it three times. I'm sure Jay. you have. I'm sure you've picked a Bible, but the law is not that you have to swear on a Christian Bible. That is not the law. You, you don't know that? If only Roy Moore had watched The West Wing... As clearly Jake Tapper did. Right. (laughs) So Ted Crockett has not seen this episode. Josh points out that nothing says that you have to be sworn in on a Bible. And there's some stories about presidents who didn't use a Bible for their inauguration. John Quincy Adams and Franklin Pierce used law books. And Teddy Roosevelt didn't use a book of any kind. And then I think there's a rumor, I don't know if it's confirmed, that Lyndon Johnson used JFK's Roman Catholic Missal instead of a Bible to be sworn in on. Has anyone ever been sworn in on the Book of Wiccan? That would be badass. <laughs> but probably not uncontroversial. Right. But then it also turns out that there's no evidence that presidents number two through ten, John Adams through John Tyler, used a Bible at all. Really? We just don't have the data. But, you know, the president here is um, going to go the traditional route, and he's trying to find a Bible. And that's Charlie's mission in this episode, which has some... Yes, I know where you're going. ...echoes of the uh, Thanksgiving knife. The knife, absolutely. I'd like to be sworn in on Richard Scarry's Cars and Trucks and Things That Go. Because <laughs> that book meant a lot to me as a kid. Do you have a choice, what you would go with? I don't, but I was thinking if Charlie does ever end up getting elected president, maybe he should get sworn in on Paul Revere's knife. Oh, uh, yeah. Good, that's dangerous. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a book. <laughs> a party trick at the time when this aired no one had used it yet but the library of congress has the lincoln bible and that's the bible that barack obama used and also that donald trump used for his inauguration they also have the chester a arthur bible which no one has used no i may throw him a a pity swear in maybe that's what i'd use yeah (laughs) a lot of people use two bibles really they'll use something like the washington bible and then their family bible as well I also found out that there's subcutaneous layers of what you're choosing to be sworn in on because people will open the Bible to certain passages. Wow. And do we have that data? Do we know? In some cases, yeah. And sometimes it's, you know, recorded. No, the Bible was closed. 
Interesting. Okay, as I mentioned in the synopsis, we start in the inauguration. The president is about to be inaugurated, and um, everybody's gathered, and everyone is concerned. All the non-administration officials that we come across are concerned that they're writing a new doctrine for the use of force. And they've not been consulted. Yes, nor have we. We have no idea what they're talking about. Right. That'll happen a few times in this episode. Phrases and subjects raised that we're not quite sure about, but our interest is piqued. This is a Mm -hmm. standard Sorkin stratagem. But before we even get to the doctrine for the use of force, we start off with the stuff about the inaugural balls. And I'm reminded that Ed and Larry sometimes have terrible ideas. Right. (laughs) What's Larry pitching? Or Ed? (laughs) I still use the mnemonic device that you suggested all the time. It really works. Larry (laughs) rhymes with Duffy and Smith (laughs) rhymes with Ed. (laughs) He says, What if he starts with all the states where jobs are in decline? Make it clear our message is the economy. Well, that's only going to be clearer if we also hand out decoder rings. Listen. I like hearing the ideas every now and then that just clang off the rim. We get them every now and then when the staff's in a room and they're trying, you know, like when they're trying to punch up jokes for a speech, things like that. I do too. All this conversation about balls is followed shortly thereafter by Josh telling the president to knock them all down, a bowling metaphor. And I realized, yeah, Aaron really just loves sports. (laughs) That is true. He does not discriminate. And then we finally hear a little bit more when the president finds Leo, or Leo finds the president, and um, they exchange a little, you know, just like Will and Toby know everything about meter and rhyme and how many words there are, the president and Leo just have Jefferson quotes at the ready. Peace, commerce, honest friendship with all nations, and entangling alliances with none. Problem is that when he said it, your best chance of getting entangled with an ally was by rowboat. Yeah. Right. Entangling alliances. Yeah. I mean, is it that they've already had the conversation? Have they done a pre-interview? <laughs> <laughs> with each other and, uh, <laughs> like a talk show no i think yeah. they're just yeah, they're history buffs they know their stuff i like the acting of that scene too i like the the hushed conversation that they have amidst the hubbub preceding the uh, inauguration mm-hmm. i mean if you're gonna talk about jefferson quotes it's best to do it in hushed tones yeah then the chief justice shows up we get the credits and when we come back from the credits we are back six days in the past we're in the press room And the president is preparing for inauguration. And the chief justice, who we did not see in the previous scene, is brought up again. It turns out he's written this opinion, or at least part of the opinion, in verse. And it's making Toby giggle, which is always fun. He... (laughs) I don't know how to say this. He wrote it in a meter. A meter. He wrote a dissenting opinion in in what I'm almost certain is trochaic tetrometer. Whenever I see... Toby smile in an episode, I think Richard must have been sore the next day. Just from using muscles he's not used to using. (laughs) For anyone who didn't connect these dots, the person that they're talking about here who's writing these wacky opinions is the very same person who is about to swear in the president, you know, when we get there six days later. Yeah, I didn't really think about that as I was watching. There's no mention of perhaps some concern about how that's going to go in front of the world, the country anyway. They don't connect the dots for us. I thought that the inspiration for this chief justice who's uh, writing in rhymes might have come from Michael Eakin, who was a justice on the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, and he wrote several opinions in rhyme, and it was around this time that he was on the Supreme Court, so I I feel like he must be a little bit the inspiration. I suppose so. I didn't know about that. Let me tell you a little bit about this guy. Please do. 
he has been criticized by his fellow justices for the way that he writes opinions. Here's an example of one. In 2011, he was writing for a majority, and he was writing about a case where a man was trying to deposit a forged check, and he said that this did not count as insurance fraud. He wrote, sentenced on the other crimes, he surely won't go free, but we find he can't be guilty of this final felony. Convictions for the forgery and theft are approbated. The sentence for insurance fraud, however, is vacated. The case must be remanded for resentencing, we find, so the trial judge may impose the results he originally had in mind. Love it. <laughs> Unfortunately, Dryming is not the only legacy of Justice Egan. Here he was go. suspended and eventually resigned from the bench after an ethics inquiry into lewd emails that he exchanged. Maybe those rhymed as well. <laughs> They definitely had cartoon naked ladies and things like that. Hmm. So the rhyming maybe ought to have been a red flag. Yes, exactly. The other judges who said, maybe this isn't the right kind of temperament. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But actually, in the review of his record, when they suspended him, they said that it was really just about this behavior. And actually, his judicial opinions were sound. The actual merits of the opinions themselves. Okay. Let the record reflect. I also remembered during this part run, Bruno Gianelli said back in College Kids, the episode with Amy Mann. Grammy winner Amy Mann. With Grammy winner Amy Mann. Huzzah. <laughs> he, he said, I'll tell you, I'm not that comfortable with a federal judge being even a little bit crazy. Fair enough. I found one thing that I thought you would love. If, I wondered if you'd seen it. But when the president is practicing here in the briefing room, he uh, pauses. He's reading the foreign policy language. And he says... America cannot be the world's policeman. America cannot enforce its own values, its own standards across the world. Yet when it's in our clear and vital interest. And he trails off. But then when they cut back to Toby, you see the teleprompter has moved ahead. And you can see, I was curious what the next line was. was mm-hmm. gonna be. And um, I wrote this down. You did. You oh, did yeah. see it. <laughs> of course. I, I was like, oh, I felt like, I felt like. <laughs> There's actually d- a double gaff, but go ahead. Point out the first one at least. Well, on the teleprompter, the line is something about something obliged. We are obliged. We are obliged, but they have spelled obliged A-B-L-I-G-E-D. Good eye. And uh, the president never actually gets to that text, but I assume that if he did, we would have heard about it. Yes, although in a second gaff, a a gaff within a gaff, or gaffigan. Uh Uh-huh. Gaffception. When we cut away from that misspelled oblige... Mm-hmm. And then we cut back to another shot where we see the prompter. That language has been excised altogether. And there's a new ending to that beginning when it's in our clear and vital interests. There's a new ending. Oh, so it's not even something like, oh, they've just moved ahead on the prompter to a new... No, it's an inexplicable... Huh. And they must have... Maybe they realized that oblige was misspelled and then wrote something new and shot that. But then when they were editing it together... But it's not like they just corrected it and spelled oblige correctly. So they changed it all together, but didn't realize they had a quick shot of the original mistake, something like that. Right. You know, I imagine when you're when you're editing, you're thinking more about the performance and... Or you have to prioritize the performance over everything else. Things slip through. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the State Department language is bluntly taking a a non-interventionist position. Mm -hmm. Bartlett says, well, at least we're being candid or something like that when about the phrase when it's in our clear and vital interest. In other words, outside of that self-serving sphere, not going to happen. Right. Which really, I feel like, is just code for um, oil. Well said. And then uh, Will is told to meet with the State Department communications director. But then later it's brought up that it's going to be the public affairs director. But then the person who he ultimately actually meets with 
is the Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs, Bryce Lilly. So as as we get closer to the meeting, the rank actually escalates. It's a reverse Barry Moreland, if you will. <laughs> exactly. And a West Wing Weekly listener pointed this out. Shout out to Amanda, who, by the way, according to her Twitter bio, works at the State Department. Nice. And was that her phrase, reverse Barry Moreland? Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. Thanks, Amanda. By the way, Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs Bryce Lilly is one of the few Sorkin characters played by an actor with a better name than his character, Granville <laughs> right. Van Dusen. <laughs> Granville Van Dusen is, yeah. his name is amazing. His voice is amazing. It's like, is it possible that Aaron got to him and changed his name <laughs> before he appeared in this episode? But I see he's, he's done other things under the name Granville Van Dusen, so apparently someone else gave it to him. <laughs> His ability to make words just drip with contempt. We've been over this long before you got here, and I imagine we'll keep on going over it long after your three weeks are done. Yes, he's pretty really wonderful in that scene. Yeah, he's great. I enjoy I remember, well, that scene altogether, you know, we're getting ahead. It's later in the episode, but that's one of the instances. It's rare, although maybe not so rare when you have Aaron Sorkin writing for you, but occasionally as an actor, you just get like a treat, a gift, an exceptional piece of writing just dropped in your lap. And I knew when I read that scene, I was like, oh, I cannot wait to film this scene. And I was delighted to work with Granville because he was such a good partner or foil or adversary in that scene yeah (laughs) his delivery is just incredible apparently i'm not done with the baileys classic classic line of dialogue yep if i drank i would probably really like baileys and then i'm imagining myself pouring myself a drink (laughs) and then going back for a second and saying apparently i'm not done with the baileys that's good yeah you can use that college kids (laughs) i don't think they drink baileys who does drink i don't know who i don't know I would, because I have a sweet tooth, and that is as close to chocolate milk as I think alcohol gets. Yeah, that's true. Let's talk about CJ and Danny for a second. Sure. CJ has gotten her groove back. How CJ got her groove back is what we could have called the long goodbye. And now that she has gotten her groove back, thanks to Matthew Modine, she is using it to pull some real mojo on Danny. Poor, hapless Danny. That's true. I'm curious to get your take on that scene, on the, on the how would you have me, or that's how I'd have you scene oh i don't know that i have a take just i think because of the lead that he has on sharif um he has some leverage there with cj but she just really with very little effort reminds him what the power dynamics of their relationship really are that's true would you object to it were the genders swapped which part the entire using of your sexuality in a professional (laughs) atmosphere where the stakes are actually super high in terms of what they're talking about. There's an actual assassination carried out by the United States that this right. guy is onto and that she's right. trying to uh, obfuscate and trying to keep him off the right path. No, I, I have, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, cause I feel like I've watched a similar kind of thing that is, to what you're describing play out maybe multiple times on the good wife. And I feel like it was fine there. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I, I don't have a problem with it. All right, we'll see whether they buy that on the West Wing Weekly comment boards. Did you notice that the president, or rather... President the president. (laughs) President the president. Did you notice that POTUS calls Hutchinson Hutchison? I think I did notice that. Multiple times in this episode, he refers to Hutchinson as Hutchison. Yeah, put me in mind of, I think today, Paul Ryan said that Sunshug is the best disinfectant. 
Sunshine is the best disinfectant. And so we, what we want is... He's clearly attempting to say that sunshine is the best disinfectant in reference to getting uh, making this memo public. But it sure sounds like he says sunshug. <laughs> sunshug is the best disinfectant. I got to get that. Where do they sell that? Excuse me, oh. do you carry sunshug? There's a little, another thing that the president says, the President Bartlett says, that when he's talking to Charlie as we're in sort of the second scene about which Bible he's going to use. You know, he had said he wanted the Bartlett Bible, and there was some disagreement from Mr. Cravenly. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a uh, Dickens character. Yeah, it's so great. And then he says, Hey, I changed my mind about the Bible. Yes, sir. I don't know. I've never... It just seems parochial. I hate saying that. I understand. And I thought, is he making a pun? Oh, hmm. Or wordplay, anyway. Yeah, perhaps so. Very good. Good catch. That's a good one, if it is. But then something happens that I took a little issue with, which is that he asks instead for the Jonathan Edwards Bible. Mm. And this was another fun part for me working on this episode, is digging in a little bit on uh, this choice. The All-Star is the Washington Bible. Makes sense that he might want that. And then his father's Bible, and then also the Bartlett family Bible. These three all make sense and kind of fit within the mold of what presidents normally use. The only outlier, the only other Bible that he asks for is this one, the Jonathan Edwards Bible. Sure. And I thought, okay, what's the significance of that? One thing I was thinking about even just as the episode started is that the president is Catholic. And so which Bible would he choose from? In terms of historical president, we only have, in terms of historical precedents, historical presidents, Kennedy. we only have, um, we only have Kennedy who used his mother's family's Bible, the Fitzgerald Bible. And so I, I thought, okay, Jonathan Edwards, that seems like a significant choice. But Jonathan Edwards is, I think, I don't think that President Bartlett would pick a Jonathan Edwards Bible. If you remember in two cathedrals, Sure. Young Jed Bartlett says to his dad when they're arguing about whether or not the service is non-denominational, he says, Catholics don't believe man is saved through faith alone. Catholics believe that faith has to be joined with good works. You're the only one. Jonathan Edwards kind of famously said that we are justified only by faith in Christ and not by any manner of goodness of our own. This is one of his things is like just the justification doctrine. According to, you know, Jonathan Edwards put forth the idea that it is not reliant on good works. And that seems like a really significant split for somebody who we've already had this precedent in, you know, we've had this come up in the show already that this is something that he believes in. Very good. Wow. Well done. Good cash. I'm sure you're, you're right. Substantively. That said, Jonathan Edwards went to Yale. That's true. But he was the president of Princeton. So split ticket. Some good and some bad in everyone. (laughs) I love that we have just like this panel of experts that we've gotten to meet through this podcast. Mm -hmm. And every now and then we can sort of return to them to ask their thoughts on things that they've already, on new episodes. Anyway, that's what I did. I went back to Mike McCurry, who had been the press secretary for Bill Clinton and is now a professor of theology. What he thought about the idea of the Jonathan Edwards Bible choice, if he also felt like that didn't sound right. I mean, he's a theologian. I just wanted some expert advice or an expert opinion. And he wrote back, which was incredible. He wrote, Bartlett's choice of the Edwards Bible for swearing in might be seen as a very sly way for him to confront the stodgy established church, Catholic and Protestant. It would be, I'm reading from his email, it would be Bartlett saying, I know what I do as president in the long run does not matter when it comes to my salvation, but my good works as president will reflect the grace I've been given as a saved soul of God. That would have been approved by Reverend Edwards. Wow. 
Okay. I like the diplomacy that Mike McCurry gives the president, even in this choice. Yeah, this is good. This is very rabbinic of him. Something that clearly, there was no intention of this <laughs> in the original text. This is, this is just going, digging deeper and finding a nugget uh, on your own. I love it. I, I mean, I'm guessing Aaron didn't have that particular take on it himself, but I like... Uh, like Mike McCurry's take on it. That's great. Yeah, I really did too. This really was a really fun episode. This is a good episode. Yeah. And then especially in combination with the next episode, it's a really wonderful pair. But yeah, doing just getting ready to talk to you was really, I had a lot of fun. Did you notice the really weird little bit of ADR that happens? I don't know. At some point when they're in the Oval Office, Leo and the president are talking. I've asked for a forced depletion report on action in Pondu. Who'd you ask? Slattery got Jack Reese. What'd it say? And it's a completely different sound. You can tell immediately. It's, yeah, his delivery is different. The audio is different. And I wonder how obvious that is to people who are watching. Casually. It looked to me like when the chief justice shows up and says his one line of dialogue, that that was a real piece. Because you don't even see his face. It's just you right. just see, you know, an imposing guy in a robe or, part, you know, a torso in a robe. And then it sounds like a piece of ADR laid into me. Yeah, probably. There's a, a moment in this episode that I really liked. is one with our guest, Danica McKellar, when Toby comes into Will's office and is grilling you about actually writing doing the work of speech writing as opposed to just sort of like pouring over bartlett's previous writings yeah this is like the analog version of you having a million tabs open on your browser and looking up <laughs> lots of things instead of actually writing the thing in the one original tab and that's how it felt to me i was like mm. i paused the episode and did about an hour and a half <laughs> <laughs> digging on, you know, inauguration trivia and did Jonathan do a deep Edwards dive. theology before I even got to the first huh. scene. So it felt like that. I like uh, Danica in those scenes. Elsie is a good half-sister, stepsister, whatever she is. Uh-huh. Half-sister. I think they have the same dad. Yeah, that's right. She speaks up on Will's behalf with Toby, and she also can just see in her face she likes when Will battles back against him. You can, you can feel her support. I like the performance. Yeah. She says, You're not thinking about policy language? I'm doing both. Because we have five days. He knows. And I can confirm that he's thinking and familiarizing himself simultaneously. Which made me think of Albert Brooks in Broadcast News. One of my favorite scenes is when he is home by himself and William Hurt is anchoring the broadcast. and He's, he's watching. He's trying not to watch. And he's got music on and he's reading. And he, he he's just, <laughs> at one point he says, I can sing while I read. I am singing and reading books. <laughs> I don't remember that. That's funny. And then we get this like wonderful little bit of DSX Machina, which I normally object to, but here I thought it was actually quite Which is that? And cool. Speech sex Machina, when Toby says, Well, the idea isn't going to walk in here, announce itself as being important, and take a place on the top of the pile. I understand. Excuse me, Will? Yeah. This is from the Congressional Research Service. It's an old Bartlett speech on foreign policy. Should I place it here on top of this pile? No, I'll take that. And again, one of those things where Aaron is pointing out. Right. He's like, I can get away with this probable impossibility. Right. By pointing it out. Right. By shining a light on it rather than trying to sneak it past you. Yep. In another episode, I feel like it could have easily been Toby taking the position that Will takes here. I agree. And I think, although they seem to have 
on the surface, some conflict over it. I think Will is earning greater respect from Toby as their interactions during this episode play out. Right. I think so, too. I think Toby knows that on another day, he might have been the one making this position. And in some ways, he has to argue with Will out of principle and as well as to get Will to sharpen his own argument. Yes, I think that's true. And I think also that's Toby's M.O. is to immediately take a contrarian position with people altogether. He's just sort of that's how he's built. (laughs) Yeah. So later we get the Jonathan Edwards Bible, which is enormous. And then there's a funny thing that happened where the Adam Kent, who's from the Jonathan Edwards Historical Foundation, calls it the John Edwards Bible. And I thought, John Kerry's running mate, like former Senator (laughs) John Edwards. I don't think that somebody from the Historical Foundation at the White House would call Jonathan Edwards John Edwards. No, I suspect not. It was 2003, so maybe real-life John Edwards somehow um, subconsciously was resonating. Got, got snuck in. Yeah. Does Jonathan Edwards mean anything to you as a singer-songwriter guy from the 70s? No. Ah, well, he does to me. Maybe we'll lay in a little bit from Shanty, one of his classic songs. Well, pass it to me, baby. Well, pass it to me slow. Take time out to smile a little bit. Is it about the Bible? It's about uh, smoking pot and hanging out. So in a sense, yes. Okay. <laughs> if I were smarter about theology, I would try and figure out a way to make that a joke about justification. But I'm not. Hey, do you understand, do they make clear why the president had his speech stricken from the record? This sort of fiery speech? No. I thought I had the same thought. Was there something so incendiary about, uh, I mean, or he wanted to hide the paper trail to this, these thoughts of his? I don't really get why it's this sort of smoking gun thing or why it had to be delivered as such rather than something will had just found right i mean even if it were something that was like oh here's this one other speech that came from congressional records i don't know but uh, yeah um he gave it on the floor it was something that he had to disavow doesn't seem like it no unclear and clearly as we discover by the end of the episode it's stuff that he still believes Mm -hmm. right it's something maybe something that he wanted to obscure in order to be more electable at a certain Mm -hmm. point that scene uh, with all the religious figures at their yes. kind of, um, I was struck by the skullcaps of the world <laughs> at that table. <laughs> you've yeah. got the, you've got represented uh, the Jewish yarmulke or kippah, the Muslim takiyah, and the Roman Catholic zucchetto. And it just made me think: Look, you're all wearing skullcaps. Can't we all just get along? Right. I mean, it's all, you're all, you're your coming at the same senses thing. are so close. You're coming at the same thing just from different directions. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, certainly a man there, the African gentleman there. I don't know. What's the character's name? Kintaka? Bishop Kintaka. Kintaka. Archbishop yeah. Kintaka. Not afraid to speak truth to power. Yeah. Although he starts in with the cardinal, but he's clearly addressing the president as Bartlett makes clear. No, he was talking to me, your eminence. And uh, he just lays it right out for him. And that resonated for me in a huge Trump III way. That and the ultimate, this scene a little bit later in the episode with the Secretary of Defense, it's another classic, it's another, it's the shithole conversation. Yes. It's exactly the Secretary of Defense, who is it, Miles Hutchinson? Or Hutchison. Or Hutchison, either is acceptable. But you have to be the president to say Hutchison. Right. Basically saying, do you want to lose people in Kundu? It's a shithole. I mean, that's the gist of his conversation with, in what is, I think, a great scene with John Spencer. So I want to give him a shout out. I love that scene. And I think uh, Steve Ryan, he should rest in peace, gives an excellent performance in his first appearance of what will be quite a few, I believe, as uh, Secretary of Defense, Miles Hutchinson. They're very good together. And it seems like 
maybe it happens in part two because of course I don't remember, but that's a very volatile conversation going on between Leo and the secretary and it ends with yeah. the go to hell or you yes. know there's there's kind of insubordination going on or depending on I guess I don't know who technically outranks whom but they're going at each other there's no uh punches pulled no yeah I, I mean I think technically you know the chief of staff like they all work for the chief of staff I mean they all work for the president but the chief of staff is the chief of staff and so i think that that really hutchinson is outranked by by leo although leo is not in the succession you know whereas the secretary of defense would be right no i suspect you're right in terms of power or leverage but you've got a secretary of defense there who's bridling against bartlett as commander-in-chief yeah and i like how leo uh, lays it out after hutchinson refers to bartlett as uh, someone who's never run an army magnificently so when we realize we're talking about a guy who's never led an army a the guy is the president b he's been leading one for three years 51 weeks and three days how much more training would you like him to have and see yeah reminds him that he has in fact been commander-in-chief for almost four years I, I love what Leo's way of calling him out. I don't know what you mean when you say in Kondu. Nah. Yeah, I do. Go to hell. Okay. And, and then after they go to hell, Leo loses it in a way that we really don't see with him. You know, he throws his thing down. He knocks over a glass of water. Yeah. Which I think is a happy accident. It didn't look to me I like that so was too. meant to happen. But that's also a great little, uh, you know, it, it maybe just seems obvious but always going taking in whatever happens you know john spencer's in the moment and probably was not meant to knock the water over but instead of going oh can we go again i'm sorry knock the water over you know like he's just so in it he kind of lives the moment and then there's something almost to me there's a little contrition yeah like you get a little something more out of the moment than probably anyone anticipated by the glass being knocked over because then he's sort of kind of you know instead of just being furious and letting it ah, it it's there's almost something he almost wants to take back the whole outburst like he's a little bit embarrassed by it that's my favorite part of that whole exchange is after he knocks the glass of water over how he kind of tries to collect himself and and picks it back up. right and that's a great actor who finds a little extra something a little extra zest to put on it because of a happy accident like that totally speaking of uh some great acting i really loved getting to see you and Bradley Whitford and Richard Schiff doing All the President's Men live in City Hall last week. I feel incredibly lucky to have gotten to witness that. It was a live reading in council chambers at City Hall with you playing Bernstein. Mm -hmm. Carl Bernstein. And uh, Bradley Whitford playing Bob Woodward. The cast was incredible. I mean, you had some of your scandal castmates. Joe Morton. Joe Morton as, as Deep Throat. Jeff Perry, Ben Bradley. And Jeff Perry is one of these people who is another Scandal West Wing crossover. We haven't gotten to his episode yet, but he's going to appear soon on the West Wing. And uh, Richard Schiff played Harry M. Rosenfeld. Right. And uh, Ed Begley Jr. played Howard Simons. And then uh, the rest of the cast was also filled out with incredibly great actors, many of whom I think have associations with the Fountain Theater. And it was directed by Stephen Sachs. It was a very special event to be uh, part of. I know an audio recording was made of it for quote-unquote archival purposes, but maybe somehow they'll find a way to get it out. And then I think also an audio recording was made by Rishi Kesh Hairway. For pirating, oh, you like that? for pirating purposes. So, <laughs> and maybe we'll share that if, if someone says we can. How did it come out? I haven't listened yet. Oh, it probably go. sounds like a lot of rustling from my jacket <laughs> right. pocket. 
Fair enough. What I loved is that in addition to all of you up on stage, the rest of the cast from the Fountain Theater were also filled with familiar faces from the West Wing. For example, Sam Anderson was one of the roles, and he, Sam Anderson, who I know most prominently from playing Bernard on Lost, but he was also in Shibboleth. Great actor. It was great. Uh, anyway, it was really, really terrific. My theory on that whole reading is that they needed to bring in someone who was ugly enough to make Whitford look like Robert Redford. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I ended how up reading Carl manage? Bernstein. It's a self-burn in order to burn Brad. Oh, yeah. I'll take the hit if he even gets a, <laughs> if, he, if he even just takes a lesser hit. Worth it. <laughs> Uh, that's, um, I don't know what that is. There was a line in this episode of The West Wing that reminded me of a line from All the President's Men. When Danny is telling CJ about his contact in Bermuda, he's been trying to find him, and then he finally finds him, and he says, I called him. And? He doesn't remember me. Then he does, but he doesn't remember anything about an airstrip. He does, but he doesn't remember anything about not getting in. Mystery solved. CJ. Remind me a lot of this moment in All the President's Men where... Bernstein's talking to the Library of Congress. Exactly. Bernstein calls and uh, the librarian says, and he asks about if Hunt had checked out these books about Ted Kennedy. And the librarian says yes, and then goes on hold and then comes back and says, Mr. Bernstein. Yes, ma'am. I was wrong. I beg your pardon? The truth is I don't have a, a, a card that says Mr. Hunt took any material. I don't remember getting material for, I do remember getting material for somebody, but it wasn't for Mr. Hunt. The truth is, I didn't have any requests at all for Mr. Hunt. The truth is, I don't know any Mr. Hunt. <laughs> Look at you. you got a mind like a steel trap. That's a great catch, a great uh, parallel to draw. And we know, as we've discussed before, that Aaron is influenced by that movie. This is true, by William Goldman uh, in general. Okay, on a separate note, towards the end of this episode, I think Josh Lyman may have achieved new lows in dickheadedness in this episode. Talk to me. When Donna finds out that Jack has been transferred and she asks Josh to look into it, he's kind of like jokingly parrying with her. But then eventually he, he really, he says, something, is he complaining? He doesn't complain. I ask you that because sometimes people request transfers. Like the, he's just being mean. That's just unkind. He is. It is unkind. And I, and I understand that it probably comes, we don't really get depth of this so explicitly in the episode, but I feel like it probably, you know, they've been laying these little crumbs for us of how much Donna's talking about Jack and the buttons on his pants and the saber and really like building him up. It just seems exceptionally petty for Josh to take all this in and turn his jealousy into this uh, really just like a dick comment. You're right. But really, that is uh, badly done, Josh. There's one really subtle way I felt like they portrayed Josh's feelings for Donna. At one point early in the episode, she leaves his office after talking about, you know, about the saber and everything like that. She leaves the office. The conversation is over and Josh just watches her the whole time. Like he, he's at his computer. I think he, he's like working on something and she finishes and she leaves. And it's not even you see his face. You know, it's I think it's shot from over his shoulder. But while she walks out, he just continues watching her the whole time. Ah, nice piece of direction by Chris Missiana. Mm -hmm. Speaking of jealousy, we also get Charlie. There, there's an, a nice, again, little like seed that gets planted and then a payoff for it. When earlier, Charlie's looking at the seating chart and uh, Josh tells him, you're sitting with us. And he's like, I'm looking for someone else. And then later at the end of the episode, we find out the person he was looking for was Jean-Paul or Jean-Pierre, as he calls him. Zoe's lover, Josh says in, in another <laughs> dick move. <laughs> yeah. 
I liked that because well, the first time when Charlie says it, it just slides by. And then you realize that even that little comment has, has meaning that's going to pay off later. Right. How about, uh, can do altogether. Do we, it seems to be like a Rwanda manke, right? It seems to be standing in for Rwanda and the Hutu Tutsi ethnic cleansing in the nineties. Do we just assume that's, that this is kind of about Rwanda just by another name? I think so. I, I feel like there's also still some, I was wondering if they're also still tying, because of the people we know who are advising Aaron on this, that there might be also some Kosovo uh, blended into it too. But uh, yeah, no, I think it's probably Rwanda. We're going to find out more about the connection to Rwanda when we speak to Gene Sperling next week. Mm-hmm. I think President Clinton has shared that one of the great regrets of his two terms was failing to do more you know, I think uh, they say between half a million and a million people died over the course of 100 days. And the U.S. Yeah. stung uh, by what had happened in Mogadishu and the Battle of Somalia that made famous with Black Hawk Down, the book and the movie, that Clinton was hesitant to act. And I think would later look back and regret that hugely. And that maybe this is a way of I don't know, you know, talking about revisionist history. Well, yeah, or just talking about it in a fictional way without putting too fine a point on what actually happened, and you know, calling it Rwanda or right. I thought it was really beautiful the moments where characters are turning away from the facts of the the genocide. Charlie asks the president about it, and the president starts to tell him, and and Charlie kind of cuts to, "Did we get the Americans out okay?" Mm -hmm. In a way that made me feel like Charlie's priorities are, as he said, you know, they're with the Americans there. And then at the very end of the episode, when um, they cut to the TV and you see the bodies and Josh has just outlined this horrifying situation about what it really means to be switching family members mm -hmm. at night or swapping family Which apparently members. happened and happens in conflict zones all over the place. This kind of <sighs> forced incest is, you know, as horrific a thing as you can imagine. One of the, I think, brilliant things about the writing and the direction is that you're right. There's all this verbal sort of parrying and slightly getting into the subject and then moving off of it with, oh, he seems to care or that one seems to care or not so much. And then you end with a picture rather than words. And it's mm -hmm. just this gut punch of, uh, I mean, what appears to be actual footage of a pile of corpses. And then it, and, and there's something about seeing something as opposed to talking about something that's just, you can't get around it and you can't cut away. And, and, and the episode ends where it should off of that. Right. And even confronted with it, it's too much for Josh. He has to turn the TV off. True. Let's talk about the scene where Will does speak truth to power, to the president. Why is a Kumbanese life worth less to me than an American life? What I like about the character's arc in this episode is you can see him, and we've even seen it in a previous episode, almost trying to psych himself up into speaking truth to power. He knows what he wants to say, but he can barely even stand normally. And that first scene in the press room, I'm clearly not comfortable really even being in the same room as the president still. There's still some residual shame and mortification from that first interaction. And You're there was, still averting your eyes. Right. And there's the end of that scene I did notice. I seem to be 
trying to get someone's attention. I can't tell whether it was a rewrite in the scene. As I exit that scene, it seems like you're going to continue with me because I'm trying to get the president's attention to see something, but that's not where the episode goes. And I, to me, it works because it, it seems to still be that sort of um, Will's trying to put himself in a position. Uh, he comes into the Oval later and he kind of a little bit pussyfoots around saying something and then he gets tongue-tied and the president says, I can't remember your name, but are you asking me out on a date? <laughs> and I like how um, rather than building up in a way to a super heroic moment where Will marches in and says, look, there's something I have to say, it just kind of comes out and, right. and it's not even initiated by Will. It's the president asking him a rhetorical question and he just says what's on his mind probably before he really thinks twice about it. I don't know, sir, but it is. It's sort of character revealing. It's, it's great writing. Yeah, it is a nice incremental build to that kind of dynamic. If he had gone in and done the, done the triumphant thing, it might have felt like... Yeah, I think we wouldn't have bought it. Yeah, not after having fumbled so many times um, previously. Yeah. I also like the idea that the foreign aid bill that had come just recently, in some ways we can imagine it as being a ramp up to this doctrine. You know, there when sort of penned in by Congress and what Congress wants to do, they weren't able to pass the foreign uh, foreign ops bill. But here in the inauguration, you know, this is really an announcement of intention. They can kind of take a second swing at it and say, "Okay, you know, you didn't want to give money to people, you know, that was a, a small ask, less, you know, 1% of the federal budget where we could help these things." And he, and here it's like they've come back even stronger. Yeah, I like things when that carry over that suggest a build episode to episode that whether or not Aaron really knew where he was going. It often <laughs> right. seems like it, you know, it almost there are things that belie his contention that he's constantly at the last minute just trying to come up with anything. The thing seems better put together than his statements would suggest. Yeah, I mean, the reason why it doesn't feel more explicit, I think, is just because of having had the long goodbye inserted in between those episodes. It kind of takes your eye off that ball a little bit. And then here in this episode, they don't make any kind of explicit reference to the, the foreign ops bill. But I think it's easy to read it that way. Do you remember filming that scene with Martin Sheen? The um, I don't know, sir, but it is. Uh, I do. And, you know, I can't say that I, I don't have any anecdotes about it. I remember not wanting to screw it up. I remember feeling that it was an important moment and that I wanted it to be credible that Will would say what he says and that I wanted to hold his gaze. Hmm. That like, you know, this thing finally came out, but I'm not going to buy it back or anything. You know, I, or I said it, but not do one of those Will things where Will's constantly, but like the bumbling's over now. Right. Whether or not I meant it, it's out there now. There's a thing that you do... We saw it in Holy Night, and you see it in, the, in this episode, too. A sort of, um, like, almost like a conducting when Will Bailey is reading, reading a page and reading it out loud, you know, holding the page in one one hand, in your left hand, in the right arm, you're sort of, like, almost conducting music. <laughs> and I was wondering if that's something that you actually do when you're reading scripts, or is that something that you fabricated for Will? You know, to, to give some heft to the idea of him as a, as a speechwriter. I think it's something I do do. <laughs> I haven't really thought about it, so it was. I guess it wasn't anything I consciously did. It, I'm guessing some of it's genetic, 
um, <laughs> as my first cousin, Stuart Molina, is the incredibly talented conductor of the Harrisburg Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> so somewhere in there, I think I've got conducting in my blood. And then I think it is just something I tend to do. I thought you were going to maybe pick up on something else. I forgot. I wrote it down, though. I've got a huge steal in my, my body language from my dad, which is that I as will. Um, and I'm not sure if I do it in other roles as well. <laughs> my dad does kind of a, he nods a lot. It's almost like a little bow. It's like, a, and it can be funny and it can be, oh, I acknowledge what you're saying. It's kind of like, it's an incredible uh, physical vocabulary that he gets into sort of the Bob Molina head nod slash bow <laughs> and i've stole it completely and used it as well and in this episode in particular i see myself do it about nine different times <laughs> right uh yeah that, we didn't talk about one of my favorite lines of the, the whole series when um bryce lily says are you rewriting the section yes sir dramatically well i like to think i have a certain flair i'm glad we mentioned that because i that was another one of those that's like i told many many people i look at that line i'm like ah, oh, thanks aaron <laughs> that's a gimme that line yeah uh, yeah i loved it and i'm actually i'm thinking of my dad now i do the head bow a lot i think when things are like when uh i may be wrong i'd have to go and look but when and i realize i'm getting tied up and it's not going well and uh you know then bartlett says you're trying to ask me out on a date there's sort of kind of a head nod like well this is over <laughs> i'm ready to go and there's a there's a <laughs> I just think this is funny. In real life, there's a circumstance where my dad does this. And that is when we're at a restaurant as a family. <laughs> and when the waiter comes over, would you like to hear the specials? Of course, we're happy to hear the specials. As soon as the waiter starts describing something that's not kosher and that as a result, <laughs> none of us can order. There's a little head bow like, well, I'm checking out. <laughs> ah, scallops. Huh. Scallops. Okay. <laughs> I was like, Dad, just let him do his thing. But I know exactly what it means. Ah, very nice. Scallops. Someone else might enjoy that. Huh, that sounds great. <laughs> I am I'm done with this. Yes, right. Next. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's great. And I'm done with this. So let's take a break. I'm nodding. You can't see me, but I'm giving a little nod. Well done. Let's take a little break. And then when we come back, we'll speak with Danica McKellar. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace will help you build the site for whatever your idea is. If you've ever had a cool idea for a new website, you can do it with Squarespace. You can showcase your artwork. You can blog. You can publish any content you can come up with. You can sell products and services of all types. We use Squarespace for our own website, thewestwingweekly.com, which by now I'm guessing you've probably seen. If not, you should check it out, thewestwingweekly.com. It's an example of a Squarespace site that was easy to put together and is easy to maintain. Every time we come up with a new idea for the site, it's quickly accomplished. It's true. In fact, I use Squarespace for my own website outside of the West Wing Weekly. It's rishikesh.co. It's my own personal page, and I use Squarespace for that. So check out Squarespace. They help you make it, whatever it is you're trying to make. Go to squarespace.com slash westwing for a free trial, and then when you're ready to launch, Use the offer code WESTWING and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Go to squarespace.com slash WESTWING. And now back to the show. Joining us now is Danica McKellar. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. We always intended to speak with you. We've been waiting to catch up to the episodes that you and I are finally on. And we've the moment has come. So how did you 
get the role? I auditioned for it, and I auditioned for Tony Sepulveda, the casting director, and it was just one of those lovely auditions where you get the call back. I came in the next day, and to my utter surprise, Aaron Sorkin was in the room. I, I just figured that would be beneath him to be in a casting session. I don't know. But I was completely starstruck by it. Luckily, that didn't throw me too much. He read with me, which was also a thrill. And then afterwards, he goes, Danica, I'm crazy about you. And I said, <laughs> I'm crazy about you, too. <laughs> now, I auditioned for this role. It was supposed to be one scene in that episode, Game On. It was one scene, and my character's name was Tracy. I came to the table read, and there were three scenes. My character's name was Elsie Snuffin, and I'm being told <laughs> that he wants to put me in more episodes after that. It was just, it was, it was a dream come true. And to be honest, at that time, I had... Gosh, I mean, I'd taken a break from acting for four years to get a degree in mathematics. Then I came back, and I was just doing these little independent films. I was kind of just messing around, trying to find my way back into the industry, to be honest. People just wrote me off like I was an ex-child star who hadn't done well. I used to get these casting directors. I would go to auditions, and they'd say, oh, so we haven't seen you for a while. Everything okay? <laughs> I was like, wow. yes. Uh, I was in college. <laughs> oh, oh, college. Well, that's great, because... You know, undoubtedly, they had in their mind that I was on drugs or I was like shock lifting or... I see. Anyway, point is, I was struggling. And I don't think that I would have had the opportunity to audition for the role as it turned out to be, which is a recurring part. I don't think that would have happened. I think because it was one scene, I got in. And then, I mean, it was just a wonderful little thing that Aaron Sorkin liked me and was a fan and decided to write stuff for me. And Josh, you're no stranger to that. I mean, he's like... Has written stuff for you for a long time. I mean, I just yes. I think that's he's a been great very story good to ever. me. He never told me he was crazy about me, but he has been oh, very no? good to me. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> oh, that was that was a moment. I'm crazy. He used both hands. I'm crazy about you. Like jazz <laughs> yeah, yeah. to the side. And I hope you said at that point, this better mean you're giving me the job because you well, can't you know say what? that I mean, and then if not. You, if you know this business, you never know. So I didn't. Right. I didn't count on it, but I was hopeful. I was beaming as I left and I drove home and I got the call. You got the job and he wants to put you in at least three more episodes. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's fantastic. When you found out that the name had been changed from Tracy to Elsie Snuffin, <laughs> did you have a question about that? <laughs> I did. That's fascinating. I mean, first Winnie, Gwendolyn, which is awkward, and then Elsie Snuffin. Well, it's my fate, but that's okay. Apparently, it was an actress he'd worked with named Elsie Sniffin on another right. project, and he just thought the name was so funny that he wanted to use it, but a variation. I was honored <laughs> to be given such an awkward name by Aaron Sorkin. Really, I was so starstruck and happy at that point. I would have been happy about anything that he wrote for me. Yeah, that's how I feel, too. It's good to have Aaron writing for you. And everything, as I recall, was kind of at the last minute. It's not like you got a couple scripts at a time, right? You got one script, we shot it, and then somewhere right before the next one started, we got the next thing. Yeah, well, I remember that one scene that we had. It's the greatest night of your life, and you're going to sleep. Special reward. The strength of the evening, and there are all kinds of volunteers who want to dance with you, and you know what that means. Dance? I think I do. That scene, as I recall, because I was taking a screenwriting class at UCLA at the time. Luckily, I left my phone on by mistake, and I got the call. You've been written into this episode, and by the way, the scene shoots today. Oh, <laughs> like, wow. Oh, well, don't tell me that you didn't also get that scene last minute. No, I'm sure I did. I yeah, just oh yeah. but you don't remember. You knew you were in the episode. <laughs> yeah, so it was like, oh, my gosh. And so I dropped everything I was doing. And I, uh, <laughs> the screenwriting class at UCLA, I felt so glamorous and, like, important. Like, you guys have to go. I mean, I was just ready uh, to uh, a scene on the West Wing. So, 
catch you later. <laughs> got in my car and drove straight to bed. Did the wardrobe fitting, got into her makeup, was like learning these lines, and uh, and we shot it, and it was great. Well, so you insta-learned them. Had you met Josh before that? Were you aware of him as the person who was, you know, your primary scene partner? Did you know what you were in for? I was not aware of him. I was aware of Rob Lowe and very excited about that, but I had not met either of them. And um, I, although I'd watched a few good men many, many times, I somehow did not have Josh. Possibly because I only had five words in the movie. What did you say? Yeah or okay? Okay or... Uh, Sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. (laughs) So I take no offense (laughs) at anyone's having seen that movie a hundred times and not noticed me. And what was your impression of Josh? Wow. Really putting her on the spot. He's here on the line right now. You know I I can hear you both. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, it's great. I remember you doing voice exercises. Really? Yeah. You do like, yeah, like, like doing all these funny things. And we're thinking, wow, that's really cool. He's like, you're sure you're not thinking of Brad Whitford? No, I'm thinking of you. I didn't have any. I was saying, boy, yeah. that doesn't sound like anything I've ever done in my life, but I'll t- I'm going to take your word for it. And the reason I remember is because I was stretching my mouth and you were like making noises. And I made a comment about it at the time. I said, I said this is so interesting because. I tend to think of stretching out my, the muscles of my mouth, and you seem to be more about making noises. Is it possible that I was voicing what you seem to be saying? <laughs> I didn't realize <laughs> that. That sounds more like me. Wow, that's very funny. That's good. I want to hear, what, what else do you remember of those early days? I remember you and me and John Spencer talking one night about how much he loved acting. And we were just, we were just concurring with him, but he just was going on about how much he loved it. And I just, that, I, that stayed with me. When he passed on a couple of years later, I just remembered that. And I remember thinking, I remember being so happy that he had this dream job of his because it was, he said he just, it was his dream job to be working on the West Wing and he was magnificent on it. I was so happy that he was doing what I knew he loved to do so much up until the end. Yeah, that's a lovely memory. And that sounds entirely characteristic of, John, who was just the quintessential actor's actor. He was. He loved acting so much, he wanted to talk about acting in between acting. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, wait, we're not acting right now? Let's talk about acting. Yeah. Oh, that's and so I, sweet. That's yeah. fantastic. He's, he's a special guy. He's a special guy. I remember Allison Janney in the makeup trailer saying her lines under her breath. Like, she had so many lines. And, you know, she's the kind of actress who makes it look easy. And it was not easy what she did. She, I mean, none of, none of, I mean, a lot of us had these big paragraphs, but she just seemed to have a lot of them all the time. And watching her rehearse helped me to not be self-conscious, being in the makeup trailer, going over lines. To this day, to this day, I, it's somewhere in my mind, I think, well, Allison Janney does it. <laughs> she puts the work in. It takes a lot of work to make it look like it's easy. Yeah. But that's great. She gave you the room to feel like, yeah, I need to respect my process. Exactly. I was, I've always been a more of a shy person and she, in these little moments in our lives, you know, they, one of the things that have a ripple effect within our own lives is memories, especially when you're a kid, but through our whole lives, little moments will stand out, sort of shine there and, and have an effect on us. Let me ask you about another change in the scripts. When you first meet Elsie, there's no mention of you and Will Bailey being related, but then in the second episode, it sort of becomes clear or, you know, there's a change that suddenly now you're brother and sister. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that, yeah, that was a change, I'm pretty sure. And then later on, I was a, a script writer for the first lady. That, again, just sort of, oh, yeah, forgot to mention. I just sort of offhandedly, it, it showed up in the script as if though people were supposed to have remembered that I was doing that the whole time. 
I didn't care. I was like, you know what, Aaron, whatever you want to do with the kids, man, I'm totally happy. Did you feel like suddenly you had to recomport yourself in a new way to accommodate the idea that you two were siblings? Yeah, the siblings thing, I, I would have treated that first episode just slightly differently. It just would have been a little more familiarity. The truth is that first episode, I think I interacted more with Rob Lowe than with Josh, as I recall. Mm. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. But there still would have been a different feeling somehow to it. But that's okay. I don't think it ruined it for anyone. I remember looking at that second script, seeing you call me big brother and thinking, oh, God, I hope I didn't flirt with her in the first episode. Well, you know, I think you said something <laughs> to me about, I guess we're not going to date. Knowing the way Aaron writes, I kind of thought that's where he was headed. So I was thinking, boy, I hope I didn't play that. <laughs> <laughs> but having having rewatched it recently, I don't think I did. I don't okay. think there's anything amiss. Okay, perfect. What else do you remember? Yeah, I had a great, I guess a great experience on it. I loved the last minute scenes. I loved having to wing it. I loved just, I just, I loved all that, the urgency. It's almost like theater. And the writing was always so good and I was in heaven. I loved the suits that I wore. I felt like <laughs> I felt like I was a grown-up actor now, you know, out of college, and sort of just this is like, well, this is real. This is like a real grown-up job that I have, and it's wonderful. Yeah, I feel like some actors kind of wilt in the environment you just described that was the West Wing and some kind of bloom and blossom. And so you're the kind of person I also like that kind of I like the extra pressure of last minute. And it, I, I think uh, you're right on the nose when you talk about it. it feels like a theater troupe and you feel like you're doing a play. You know, you have rehearsal and then, you know, you're not quite ready, but it's opening night. Go do it. Oh, I love the table reads that we did. Because I didn't have scenes with everyone, but I remember every week we'd get together and do a table read. Martin Sheen, um, who I never had any scenes with, he would just would say, hello, I don't remember your name. What is your name? I don't remember your name every time. But I didn't, I mean, I didn't mind. He, and I liked the fact that he was so forthcoming about it. Most people pretend to remember your name or, or just That's avoid right. you. And then I would tell him, it's Danica McKellar. It's so nice to see you again, Mr. Sheen. Oh, oh great, Danica. Okay, good. I reintroduced myself for four seasons. Yeah? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Don't feel so bad. And has the show, is it, it's one of those jobs, I think, that you carry with you, right? It's, you know, it's a decade and a half later, and you say you have people, at least on Twitter, reaching out. Do you see people who remember you from the show? And you know, it's not touchdowns as for common you? as The Wonder Years or now well, sure. Hallmark movies. People love these Christmas Hallmark movies. Hallmark Channel runs Christmas movies 24-7 in November and December. And right on. people watch them. Like, everybody tunes in. I mean, it's incredible. And people come to me all the time now and, and mention Hallmark movies. And then, of course, The Wonder Years. On my bio, like, if I have a short bio, I always mention West Wing near the top. Because I'm proud of it. It's a great sure. project. That's very cool. And am I right that you also do a lot of voice work? I do. I do cartoon work. It's funny, the two series I'm working on right now, I'm not allowed to talk about yet. That's intriguing. Cartoons are so secretive. It's weird. I'm going to venture that they're superhero related and uh, like Marvel or DC projects, because I know you've done them before. And I know that that stuff gets really secretive, especially. I cannot comment. I, oh. I will not comment ding, 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 on ding, that. Ding. You know, I think right. you just you're did wrong. comment. Right for one of them, but not the other, maybe, or maybe not. So, uh -huh. so there. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but you know, the other thing that's taking up a lot of my time that I love doing is writing these math books to inspire kids. I have this website, mckellarmath.com, for 10 years now. I've been writing these books. I was a math major at UCLA, loved it, loved math, I love entertainment, and I, 10 years ago, I started writing these entertaining math books. So they're fun, they bring math to life, 
They make it not scary, which is really the biggest thing to me. Since I have so many books, my sixth one is coming out in February, and there's more. There's two more after that in June, and then more after that. I was like, you know what? I'm starting a website called mykellermath.com. You go there, there's a big slider button, and you check it based on the age, which book is right for your kid, and make it really easy. Have them all in one place. All right, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go to mckellermath.com. I'm going to put in 51, and I'm going to see what I get. Very exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. It's fun because I do, you know, you asked me what I get recognized for. I do get recognized quite often now for my math books. Well, I also do a series on Netflix called Project MT Squared. I don't have a huge role on it. Project MT Squared, it's really a show for teenage girls and preteen girls. It's so fun. It's Charlie's Angels, except that they're teenage girls, and I play with Charlie. So I come like down the like a drop down screen appears in the laboratory and I'm like, girls, your next mission is blah 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 blah. And it's the same age as the middle school books that I that I've written. So I have a lot of kids come up to me and say, Oh my gosh, I love you as the quail and, and I read your math books and that's that's the best. They don't know the West Wing, but maybe their parents will show them when they get older. Well fair enough. Now you have nineteen things to be known from. Nineteen major <laughs> contemporaneous projects. You're the busiest person I've ever met. I'm glad that you took time to talk to us. Appreciate it. pleasure. Can I ask you one last question about the show? Yes. Maybe there's no answer to this, but I'm wondering amid all of this sort of dreaminess of the situation, was there anything that was particularly challenging? What was the hardest part of being on the show? Was there, was there any parts of it, of the experience that were less than ideal? Well, we shot pretty long hours. So sometimes they're delirium that in but I was so honestly I was in such a good mood that I didn't really mind honestly the hardest part was not getting any more calls for more episodes so I was like well I wonder I wonder if I'm gonna have any more this season and then the next season and then suddenly Aaron was not doing the show anymore and I was like well I guess that was probably it and it was hmm. oh oh that's sad you asked me a sad question you asked me I did I want, I want well, thank you for the candid answer that was a good answer yeah absolutely but you know what? It's just like anything. Nothing in life lasts forever. Not the good stuff, not the bad stuff. I'm proud of the work that I've done, and I'm proud to even get to say that I was on the West Wing. Right on. Well, thanks so much for talking to us for this episode. My pleasure. Thanks, Danica. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next time with the second part of this two-parter inauguration over there. It's time to remind you, as always, that you can follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, you can follow Danica McKellar at at Danica McKellar. That's D-A-N-I-C-A-M-C-K-E-L-L-A-R. Big thanks again to Mike McCurry and Irene Damaris from the Wesley Theological Seminary. So cool. Mike McCurry is also the person who introduced us to the Alzheimer's Association. So double thanks for that in the last episode. You did a very good job with that, by the way. Till we meet again, do listen to Rishi's other neater podcast song exploder and watch the waning days of josh's series scandal that's thursday nights scandals off into the sunset yeah and while we're at it watch waney days which was a great web series that david wayne made true enough you should check out david's new movie on netflix a futile and stupid gesture about uh, the creation of the national lampoon the west wing weekly remains as ever a part of radiotopia a curated network of extraordinary Cutting Edge Podcasts. Learn more at radiotopia.fm. Thanks so much to Zach McNeese and Margaret Miller. And thanks to you, Josh. Well, right back at you, Rishi. Okay. Okay. What's next?
Big thanks to Adzerk for providing their ad-serving platform to Radiotopia.